We've been in a series um, for two, this is the third week now in the book of James, and the series is all about faith. Um, James is a book that is all about the Christian life and how it's lived in faith. And as we've been going through that, we've been learning a lot about trials and how we should act in faith, both in in hard times and in easy times. But, you know, um, this week we come to a text that honestly is not an easy one to preach, and I know it's not an easy one to hear. And more than that, it's not an easy one to receive. And so um, I just want to take a moment and pray for the Spirit's guidance, both on my teaching and, and your listening, and, and allow the Holy Spirit to do some work here instead of um, just me saying words. So, Heavenly Father, I, um, I ask that you would help me teach this message with all humility, Lord, um, and uh, to teach this message with love, but to communicate your word properly and um, thoroughly. Lord, that we would, as, um, as I'm listening to myself and even listening to these um, scriptures here, Lord, and then for everyone here, I pray that we would listen with ears to hear and hearts to receive, Lord. Um, I pray that we would not be thinking of the person next to us or across the room who needs to be hearing this, but we would instead receive it for ourselves, think personally, and receive the application personally for each one of us so that we're not accusing others in our heart, but instead receiving what your scripture has to say for each one of us individually. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you guys want to get to James chapter 2, we're going to be going through verses 1 through 13. Now, um, James, as I said, is a book that's all about faith and the Christian life lived in faith. And then we get to this portion of Scripture here where James is going to really tell us how we should relate with one another, how we should treat one another, and even how we shouldn't treat one another. It's a text that um, is difficult, as I said, to receive. It's a text difficult to be honest with yourself. And we're going to try to go as deep as we can personally in our own hearts, explore our own motives, and truly understand um, what Christ wants for our church as we relate with one another. And I titled the message Relate, and the definition for the word relate is to establish a social or sympathetic relationship with a person or thing, which I believe is what God wants us to do with each other, to be sympathetic towards one another and to truly have relationships where we care for one another, we're praying for one another, we want the best for one another instead of tearing each other down or... Um, accusing each other or having division with one another. And then there's kind of a second definition to the word relate, and that's when you're thinking more of it in terms of being related by blood, maybe. And I think as we we look at the first definition and we, we go through this scripture of how we're supposed to be sympathetic with one another, loving towards one another, it's important to remember that because of the blood of Christ, we are blood related. It's not physical blood, it's not our own blood that is related, but we are related because of the blood of Christ. We have been made family and heirs and children of God all through the blood of Christ, the work that He did. And so we relate with one another, remembering that we are all siblings in the family of God. Amen? In Galatians 3.28 it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. 
interesting thing about that verse is those are areas of discrimination. Between Jews and Greeks, there was discrimination. Between slaves and free, there was discrimination. And between male and female, there was discrimination. And Paul says that there are no longer Jews and Greeks, male and female, uh, slave or free, but that we have an all made one and equal in Christ. And that we do not discriminate based upon these kind of things. And so we get into James verse, um, or chapter 2, verse 1, and he's going to be saying some very similar things here. Verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He says, show no partiality, and then he calls upon our faith, which he's already talked about. He's reminding us that you believe certain things, so act accordingly. Your faith should, and in fact must, influence your actions. It must influence the way you treat people. It must influence your day-to-day life. Otherwise, maybe you don't have the faith that you profess. Then he says, my brothers, show no partiality. Partiality, the definition for is unfair bias in favor of one thing or person compared with another. Another word um, that's used in different translations is favoritism. Show no favoritism. Now, it's an imperative in the Greek. He's commanding us to not show partiality, to not show favoritism in the church in all areas. And we'll, we'll go on and we'll explore that a little deeper, but let's read verse 2 through 5 here. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. Now, he gives a very specific example to something he either witnessed in churches or heard about in churches. So I'm sure there's a bunch of people reading this at that time going, he's talking about me. (laughs) Maybe there were other pastors in the area, and and they're going, oh, James is talking about me. You know, I'm sure this was uncomfortable to read. James gives a very specific example, but I want to clarify something. The specific example he gives is not the problem. It's one of many problems under partiality. This isn't the only example of partiality in churches. It's the one he's speaking against, but he said that before that, we should not show partiality or favoritism, and that is in all areas. We should not discriminate in all areas, not just rich and poor and where they sit in church. That's just one example he's pulling so that they know a very specific thing of which he's talking about. But in all areas of partiality and favoritism, discrimination, James is saying this is, in fact, a sin and you are being a judge with evil thoughts, he says. Now, I don't think most churches um, today are going around and looking at people's clothes and then assigning seats accordingly. But I do believe that in our hearts, we make judgments and we favor people 
based upon materialistic things that we prefer. And we discriminate people based on external, materialistic, or worldly things that we don't prefer. Do we not? We do. Um, Now, are you allowed to have preferences? Are you allowed to like things more than other things? Absolutely. You're, You're a unique being created by God. You're allowed to like music that others don't like. You're allowed to like clothing that others don't like. You're allowed to have opinions on things. But when we discriminate or show favoritism to those who agree with us, look like us, sound like us, drive the same cars as us, have the same type of house as us, have the same um, amount of money as us, and discriminate against those who don't, showing them less love, maybe showing them um, less honor, we are in fact showing favoritism and we are actually discriminating. And James would say that we're being evil judges. It's not an easy word to take, right? Being accused of being an evil judge or a judge with evil thoughts. He doesn't want us to judge. He doesn't want us to be partial or discriminate. Now, the question obviously is, well, is all judgment bad? Is all judgment bad? No, not all judgment is bad. The word partiality in the Greek carries the term of Judgment based upon, it really means judging the face. That's the most literal translation of it. Or externally judging someone's outward appearance. So the understanding of it would be any kind of external, materialistic, uh, worldly, outward thing that somebody does or looks like. This is what he's specifically referring to. Now, is all judgment bad? Well, no, because isn't James judging the sin of partiality? Isn't James judging the churches he's writing to and saying what you're doing is wrong? He's making a judgment. So is James in the wrong for judging here too? Absolutely not. Why? What's the difference? Well, one is based upon opinion and preference, while the other is based upon the Word of God. And that is the major key in what is good judgment and healthy judgment that builds up and unhealthy discriminating and and showing favoritism type of judgment. So it would be um, as simple as saying, well, is this something that God has declared right or wrong? So you're not actually the judge. You're simply reiterating or communicating what God has already declared. Whereas when you judge someone based on some external thing where God has already said, I love all people, I, I died for all people, I want all of them to be in the church and treated equally, and we go, well, we're not going to do that. He's saying that that is an evil judgment. When we judge things that God has already declared equal, he's already declared good, and we say, well, we don't prefer it, or we don't prefer the poor, we don't, we don't prefer those who aren't like us. So we discriminate against them. Well, this is us actually being in rebellion of what God's already declared. And so when we see others, Christians, in sin, we are to lovingly build each other up, lovingly rebuke and exhort one another and say, hey, help, let me help you see what God says about this situation. That is not our own judgment, that we are simply reiterating or communicating what God has already judged. So that is a good judgment. A bad judgment is when we are simply judging people based upon our own opinions. Which I believe, whether we like it or not, we are 
more guilty of it than we want to admit. Are we not? It is literally one of the biggest topics in the news right now. Right? You have, I, I know that there might be a spectrum here on the, your opinions of cops and um, African-American criminals, or maybe they're not criminals, maybe they're just getting pulled over, right? Maybe they're doing nothing and they get shot or something. There's a huge debate. If you're on Facebook at all, I'm sure you've seen this, right? It's a huge debate right now. Now, obviously, I'm all for our officers who are putting up their lives every day on the line, saying, I'm willing to serve our country, I'm willing to serve my local people and protect them. But we would also be foolish to assume these officers are perfect, wouldn't we? We'd be foolish to assume that. And there is absolutely an element of discrimination and remnants of racism that is in our country. And as the church, we have to be careful about how we word things. We have to be careful about how we treat others and and the example we portray so that we are the best example of what Christ's church looks like and we don't make judgments, we don't discriminate, and we don't even judge the situation without knowing all the facts, right? Because you see one little video and everyone's got one side or the other. It's like we should acknowledge discrimination, but we should also be slow to judge an officer who's on the line, making it a quick decision, right? So let's, let's be wise in how we look at situation. That's one that is um, a big deal right now in our country. In John seven twenty four, it says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Do not judge based upon appearances, but judge with right judgment. What is right judgment? The judgment, the things that God has already declared. God can be an all-perfect judge because He knows all, He created all, He loves all, He's perfectly just. He hates sin perfectly, but He loves the sinner perfectly. That's why God can judge what's right and wrong. We are incapable of judging things. I mean, I'm not speaking against our our, our judicial system in our country. We need that. Even God says that in Scripture that those are generally serving good, although not always, but generally are serving good. But when we make judgments, we don't have all the information, do we? We don't know someone's past. We don't know someone's heart. We don't even know exactly what we did. Oftentimes, it's just based upon what we heard. And oftentimes we're so quick to make a judgment based on an appearance or, or a rumor or something that we see. And we have to take a step back and say, I'm not going to judge things on appearances. I'm going to go and base it on right judgment. Does the Word of God speak about this? Can I address this through the Word of God on things that God has already given us? Or am I simply making my own judgments here and in a way making myself a God? By judging others. Now let's continue through here in James. He's going to give us some more clarification on their situation and how to react to it. Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has God, sorry, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? So he quickly says to him, hey, um, while you're judging the poor... Uh, remember, they're really rich in God's kingdom. 
and you're judging based on this materialistic thing where God is actually saying they're richer than any person on the planet because they're God's children. They are heirs in the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. How dare we judge people based on materialistic things when God has already declared a judgment about them and it's a child of God, loved by God, an heir of God. How, we, how dare we judge people anything different? You're not worth anything when God says that they're worth a whole lot. I don't like you. Well, God likes them a whole lot. God loves them so much so he sent his only son to die for them. When we make such rash judgments on stupid, physical, materialistic things, we're being evil judges. And God is saying, you are not seeing them the way that I see them. And the whole theme of James is the Christian life in faith, thinking of things eternally. You, he talk, speaks a lot throughout the book of wisdom, using the wisdom of God. If you don't have it, ask for it. Lean into it. Draw near to it so that you can judge things through the way that God would see it. See it the way that God would see it. Those people that you don't like are people that God has sent His only Son to die for. So we must... view people with the identity that God sees them as children, as heirs. Especially within the church. And then he says this, verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? James is like, you are making a judgment, and let me tell you that your judgment is actually wrong because you don't know all. The poor heirs of God and the rich ones that you're favoring are the ones that are suing you, the ones that are taking you to court, the ones that are blaspheming. See, that's the thing is when we make our own judgments, we're most of the time going to be wrong because we're not God because we don't know all. So he shows here, you will I'm good for you on favoring those people, but you've actually made the wrong judgment. In a way, you're kind of um, really screwing yourself over because the people that you're favoring are the people that are going to sue you. They're the ones who are going to take advantage of you. We're not capable of making proper judgments apart from the Word of God, apart from the wisdom of God. We are just simply incapable of it. Now, of course, we think we're really, really wise, don't we? We think we're so wise and so smart, and we think every opinion we've had is so right. Right? I'm a Republican, and I hate Democrats, or I'm a Democrat, and I hate Republicans, and we think we're so sure about it. Don't we? Or you just hate all of them right now. That might be more of us. (laughs) Right? Uh, I mean, that's just one example, though. I mean, there are so many things you see. I mean, sometimes, like, I just have to get off Facebook. Do you ever feel that way? Because you just see so much, like, there's always a contrast of sides presented to you on Facebook. It always seems that way. And there's always so many harsh opinions. I really wonder sometimes if, if God is looking at that and going, you guys know nothing. What are you judging all these things for when you are so foolish? You know, we talk about presidential elections. You know, in uh, Psalms, there's a Psalm, I can't remember which one, it's not my notes, but he says that he laughs at the rulers and their, and their plotting. He says, I'm in control of all, and he just laughs at our kings and rulers as they're plotting their schemes. That's what it says. Um, 
and we probably do have one of the more comical uh, presidential elections, if I'm making my judgment. <laughs> but, you know, God laughs because he's in control of all, and he is the judge of all, and he's perfectly just and perfectly loving. And so we need to learn to draw near to his wisdom and his guiding, and not on our opinions and our preferences. So, he tells us what to do instead here in uh, verse 8. He's told us that we cannot make correct judgments. And in fact, oftentimes our judgments are going to be wrong. And in verse 8 he says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law of uh, by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you commit adultery but do, if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So, here he says, you want to follow the royal law. And while you're at it, he says, just know that if you fail in one point, you're guilty of the entirety of the law. If you fail in one point, you're guilty of breaking God's law, and that punishment is what? Sin, a death. Punishment for sin is death. So he says here, he's like, I want you to take more seriously the sin of partiality. I want you to realize that this sin is a serious sin, Serious enough that if this was your only sin, if you were perfect in every way, but you were partial towards people, that would be enough for you to spend eternity separated from God. Just that one sin would be enough. He wants us to take seriously the sin of partiality. Now, adultery and murder we might take more seriously, but he's saying any one sin is enough to make you guilty of breaking all of it. But he kind of implores us to instead to fulfill the royal law. Which does, don't you like the sound of that? The royal law? That makes my ears kind of perk up like, what's that? That sounds cool. Well, the royal law is given in Leviticus 19.18, and it's to love thy neighbor as yourself. But it's also reiterated by Christ and expounded on a little more in Mark 12, 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. He actually says also as the, the, all the law is summed up in these two, if you look at it. How we respond to God, how we serve God, and how we treat each other. If we love each other, all the other laws really fall under that. If we love God and love each other, all the laws are simply covered by those two things. If we would do those two things perfectly, all the other laws will be covered. Now, he says to 
really go after the royal law, to fulfill the royal law of loving one another as we love God. If we're claiming that we have a relationship with the almighty God of the universe and we love Him, out of that, the natural outpour out of that is should be loving thy neighbor. But it doesn't stop there. As yourself. As yourself. And we love ourselves. Right? We are selfish human beings where we think of ourselves most of the day. We take care of ourselves most of the time. We're naturally pretty selfish. And he's saying, I want you to love others as if they were yourself. Care for their needs. Care about their opinions as much as you care about your opinions. Tend to their needs as much as you tend to your needs. It gets pretty difficult. It's a nice thought. Oh, love God, love neighbor. All right, cool. Sounds great. Let's do that. But then it gets a little personal. Would you want to be treated that way? Would you want to say that? Would you want that said about you? So don't say it about them. It gets pretty difficult to do because we are so selfish. Let's continue. He continues to expound on this. Verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. So he gives us another law, the law of liberty. What is the law of liberty? Does this mean that you're completely free and you can just do whatever you want? No, it doesn't. The law of liberty is that you are free from the law. You are freed from sin by the grace of God, but it doesn't stop there. The law of liberty says that we will be judged because now we have grace to overcome sin in our lives. We have strength. We have power given to us by the Holy Spirit who lives inside us. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The Spirit, in, the Spirit indwells the believer. So he's saying the law of liberty freed you from the law because you were given something so much greater, literally relationship through the Holy Spirit, strength through the Holy Spirit, power through the Holy Spirit. Now, Christians will not be judged based upon their sin. The Bible is very clear about that. If you believe... All judgment for your sin was put upon that cross. Jesus bore it and conquered it. But it says over and over in scriptures that Christians will be judged based upon their good works and held accountable for their their actions and what they did and then rewarded accordingly. So in the law of liberty, he's like, I gave you everything. Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms is available to you right now. You lack nothing. How much of that are you going to take advantage of? And you'll be rewarded accordingly. Now, of course, we go, well, is there levels of heaven? uh, Do I get a bigger house? Who who cares, right? He's saying, this is between you and me right now. Stop thinking about your friends because that's what you like to do. Who's going to get a bigger house in heaven? Why are you worried about that? (laughs) All right? Who's going to have more jewels on their crown? Like, why are you worried about that? We'll be perfect in heaven. There will not be jealousy in heaven. There will be humility and love. And if someone is rewarded more, you're going to rejoice for them because you will not have the sin of jealousy or envy anymore. But it says that we will be judged based upon our good works because we had this unlimited access to the power of God, right? Jesus said they will do even greater things than me. How much are you going to take advantage of it? How much are you going to walk in it? How many blessings are you going to partake in? 
every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And we sit there struggling with the same things and stuck in our flesh thinking the same ways all the time. And God's like, I literally can give you complete freedom from all of that. By the power of the Holy Spirit, just take advantage of it. He wants us to live in this law of liberty where we can access the grace of God simply by believing and and stepping forward in faith. But oftentimes, we believe for salvation, and then so many of our other areas of life, we don't believe. We eventually start to feel completely defeated by a sin or many sins. Whether it's a sin of um, omission, where you're not doing the things you know you should be doing, or if it's a sin of simply you know you shouldn't be doing this thing, you keep doing it. And we feel like we're still slaves. We feel like we're still stuck. Right, we believed enough for salvation, but then we feel like I can't, I don't believe that God will free me from this or that. God is saying, you will be freed ultimately, but you can access that right now. You can access freedom right now. I'm not saying you can be perfect. We're still battling with that flesh. We'll always be stuck in these bodies until we die. So until we die, until we're risen and given a new body, we will always be dealing with the flesh. But we can begin to truly access those spiritual blessings in the power of God, and we do so under the law of liberty. Then verse 13, it gets even more fun. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs triumphs over judgment. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Does it really mean that? Let me tell you, it does. The Bible says it over and over and over again. We can try to like tweak it and change the order and make it sound nicer. But the Bible multiple times, I believe over 10 times, says that if you do not forgive others, if you do not show mercy to others, you will not be forgiving yourself. Now, I believe it's because it shows that you don't actually believe the gospel. I believe it shows that you don't actually believe what you claim to believe. If you guys will turn with me um, to Matthew 18. Um, we'll be reading the parable of the unforgiving servant. And this is a parable. This is a story where Jesus shows this truth um, in form of a story, in, sto- in form of a parable. But he also, in other places, um, says it m- much more directly like it does in James. Um, as you guys are turning to Matthew 18, you know, in Matthew 6 it says, but if you do not forgive others their sins, the Father will not forgive your sins. Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Uh, Luke 6, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Matthew 6, it's in the Lord's Prayer. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgotten our debtors. It's in the Lord's Prayer. It's all over Scripture. All right, Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, 
but 70, um, or seven, 70 times 7 times. But therefore the king of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Let's stop there. 10,000 talents. This is somewhere in the range of 4 to $5 billion today. So imagine that you have a debt of 4 to $5 billion. And this is a normal day labor. Okay? This would take 200,000 years to pay off, working 12 hours a day every day. So this is an eternal debt. That is, of course, speaking without interest. With interest, it would be an eternal debt. You would never be able to pay it off. You would never be able to pay it off. Now, 10,000 talents. So, of course, the readers listening to this, they're like, obviously, it would be like us saying, well, you, you owed somebody $5 billion plus interest. Okay? And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and the payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. He can't. He's lying. (laughs) I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That would be maybe three months' wages. So we're talking maybe $10,000. There's little debate on how much a denarii was, but um, uh, let's just say $10,000. He owed $4 billion, and he has a friend who owes him 10000 Sorry, lost my place here. 100 denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will, I will pay you. And he could have. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Right? You can't possibly read this story and not feel convicted. You can't possibly read this story and not take seriously grudges and when others sin against you to forgive them. Because you are guilty of breaking all the law, even if you only sinned in one area. But we don't just sin in one area, do we? We sin in a lot of areas. And you are guilty of eternal, you're guilty of sinning, your judgment is eternal separation from God.
And if we truly understand that Christ saved us while yet we were still sinners, we have nothing to boast about. And we should always remember, I am a sinner. Who am I to not forgive other sinners when God has forgiven me of all my sin? When we think that we're generally good and we generally deserve heaven, like God's pretty excited that we're going to be up there. You know, he's, he just can't wait to be in the presence of me. When we think like that, like I can see why God chose me. I can see why God, I'm so great. <laughs> when we think like that, we're much more inclined to look at others and judge their sin and not forgive them. Where Christ is saying, no, no, you deserve hell. And it's only by my grace, only by my mercy, that you can be forgiven. Show, show that same love, show that same mercy and grace to others who sin against you. If we understand the gospel, we must forgive others. You know, I've heard it said that our sin always looks worse on somebody else. Right? We just tend to wear it way better, or we think. Right? When it's your sin, it's like, well, you know, you don't know my past. You don't know what I've been going through this week. If you understood, like, how my brain works, you'd understand why I act this way. We, like, right? But then we see our sin on somebody else, and you go, oh, they're disgusting. What's wrong with them? <laughs> We're so much more gracious to ourselves when we need to be gracious to others, knowing that we were saved from all the punishment that we deserved. Now, he says that mercy triumphs over judgment. That is true spiritually for us. His mercy triumphed over the judgment that we were deserving of. That's true eternally. Mercy triumphs over judgment. But it's also true today. It's also true in each one of your relationships with people. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's more powerful and it's greater than your judgments. Mercy is always better. We should always be quick to to forgive, right? So I believe as we're talking about the sin of partiality and discriminating against each other, and we're talking about really two types of judgment here. We need to learn to be much more forgiving and to view people the way that God views them. All right? And this goes on both sides of judging. Whether you're judging people based on external things, why are you doing that? Be merciful with them. Who cares if they drink Keystone Light and you go to breweries? <laughs> right? Be friends with them. Like, that's a real one. Like, I've heard people, I think jokingly, but you never know, say stuff like, oh, if they drink that beer, I don't want to be friends with them. <laughs> right? Don't we, like, I don't want to be friends with Democrats. I don't want to be friends with Republicans. How, you really believe that? You really are going to vote for him or her? <laughs> don't we judge based on these stupid things? Oh, okay, politics isn't stupid. Okay. Yes, it is. <laughs> we must show mercy to one another. And then when it's something that it's a right judgment, when you see a brother or sister in sin and, and, and you know it's not the best thing for them, we must not tear them down. 
if you go to someone with the intention of ripping them apart, right? If we go with the intention of this accusation kind of anger and hate you, sinner, I hate you, like kind of attitude, we are then in sin. We go always in rebuke or exhorting to one another with what? Love with the intention of really building them up as others hopefully have been doing in our life. I would not be where I am today if people didn't lovingly tell me, Stephen, that is really dumb. Why are you doing that? (laughs) Hey, let me show you in Scripture why what you're doing is wrong. If people didn't do that, I would just be a fool. Running around thinking I was right about everything, arrogant, cocky. But people throughout my life have challenged me on many, many things. And I hope that people have in your life. And I hope as a church, none of us are above that. We are all striving to build one another up, to be imitators of Christ. And so that means that, one, you have to be open to the idea of uncomfortable conversations, right? It honestly sometimes is harder to do that than it is to receive it, but we also have to be open to receiving it. And that is also very difficult. So one... If you love them and you, and you know there's something that, man, that's going to hurt your life. That's going to hurt your relationship with the Lord. We go and we speak to one another in love with the, with the goal of building them up and having them as a more healthy member of the body of Christ. But we also have to be receiving that because we know that we're not perfect. Right? We were talking about it. We had uh, some guys. We did a guys meeting last night. and um, We were talking about that and we're saying that, you know, sometimes it's really hard to receive that, though. Because when you know they're a sinner, you know some of their, their sin, you can pretty easily disqualify what they're saying. Even if it's true, just because you know something about them, you want to go, well, it doesn't matter, because you do this, so why are you talking to me? Go fix yourself first. Go get the log out of your own eye, which is true, they should, but we don't want to receive the truth that they're saying just simply because we know something about them. Colossians 3.13 says, Bearing with one another. And if one of you has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Don't you like that it says bearing with one another? Like it can be a real bear to bear with people sometimes, right? Maybe you can like look across this room and maybe there's somebody that annoys you, Right? Maybe you're the person that annoys people. I'm just kidding. Uh, you know what I'm saying? But we have to bear with one another because it's so easy to just cut out. And that's what we do in the world. That's what we do in our flesh. We just cut out. Oh, I don't like it anymore. I cut out. But we're an eternal family through Christ Jesus. The work that he's done, it makes us an eternal family. You can't cut out. You've got to spend eternity with him. <laughs> you know? So we bear with one another. It's not the only place in Scripture that says that. It actually says a lot. That we bear with one another. That we bear with each other's weaknesses. That those who are strong have the obligation, it says, to bear with those who are weak. The obligation. It's not an option. If you think yourself strong, you must bear with those who you see as weak in certain areas. Not a suggestion. You must. In the church. If we're going to be a church, we must bear with one another. But it says in Ephesians 4.2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Because we just want to go, okay, I'm going to try it. I'm going to talk to him about it. Right? I'm going to say something. But then a week goes by, and we're like, never mind, they didn't do it. Let's cut them out. Let's cut them out. Well, no, with humility, knowing who you are, with gentleness, a sweet attitude, a tender attitude, and then with patience, knowing that we are all imperfect and working on things, and it's going to take time. So we're there to build up each other. Matthew 18, uh, Jesus tells us some very specific things to do when people sin against us. And I honestly believe that oftentimes in the church we do not do it in the order that we are supposed to. Let's read. Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, which will happen is happening, uh, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen, then tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We oftentimes jump to the third. Right? We start gossiping. So-and-so said this. Oh, man, I can't believe they said that. They did what? If you see it, don't talk about it. Go talk to them. Right? Sometimes we do the holy gossip. I just want to pray for so-and-so. They're struggling with this. Or sometimes we use leaders in the church to just go tattle. Any leader in the church, we are trying to, tr- trying to learn this, right? Because we're also imperfect people. And sometimes, as imperfect people, our ears perk up when we hear gossip, right? And we're repenting of that, too. If you go to a leader of a church, let me tell you what so-and-so is doing. The first question should be, have you talked to them? No? Why are you talking to me? That's hard to do because we love the gossip. We even love holy gossip. It's not not holy, right? (laughs) It's not a holy thing to do. We must go to that person first. If they do not repent from there, then you go to two to three others, preferably people that also know him and also witness this thing. Then you go to the church. That could be church leadership. Um, I wouldn't just come up on a Sunday sermon and start blabbering on about somebody, okay? <laughs> we did those steps, and now I'm going to come on stage and yell about it. No, you go to the church leadership, and there can be church discipline in rare cases, in cases where all the things we're told to do in, in Scripture and a person's still not receiving. That's when you, you do church discipline as very, very, very last resort. And it tells us that it actually it does a final work of kind of bringing them around oftentimes. That, that saying, well, we don't want you at our church for a little while until you can, to, we want you to take some time away and, and think about this thing. That is the most awkward thing to do. But the Bible tells us that it does a work in their hearts of repentance oftentimes. And it's actually for the best interest. But it's a very, 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 very last resort. Very, 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 very last. But when, when you don't like somebody or you are annoyed with somebody or somebody's done something that really offended you or really hurt you, you want it to be the first step. Right? You want just cut them out. Can we just kick them out of our church? You, can you believe what they did? No, that's not the way we should act. Hebrews ten twenty four, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. It's to the goal of of making us more healthy Christians, not to tearing us apart or causing division. 
Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is for a very good reason that we need to speak to each other and, and talk to each other. Ephesians 4 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Let our words be seasoned with salt, seasoned with grace, speaking in love always, even in hard situations, even with people that have offended us as, as we're talking to them about that situation or whatever. We must always, with seasoned with grace, seasoned with salt, speaking to one another every day with love, building one another up. If we do this, we will become a more healthy church. And I don't know about you guys, I'd rather have a healthy church than an unhealthy church. Right? Is anybody here hoping that we have an unhealthy church? Absolutely not. We want to have a healthy church, but we sometimes shy away from the things that will help us be a healthy church. And that's both speaking against one another's sin and receiving it from others. So, I know I went slightly down a route here away from partiality to talk about how we can lovingly exhort one another. But the thing is, I think it all goes together. Oftentimes, our judgments are just so inaccurate. We must treat all people, no matter what they've done against us, no matter if they have preferences that we don't prefer, if they do things we don't like, if they have certain beliefs we disagree with, we must treat people with fairness and equality and love. Because the people that we don't favor will be the people that we show the least amount of mercy and love to when they do something wrong, right? But whereas your close buddies or something like that, the people that, man, they, they think the same way as you, they, they live the same way as you, those people are going to generally show more grace and love to you. You're going to favor them. And we do this even in spiritual things where we should be treating one another as all the same. There's no partiality. There's no discrimination. Um, and if we have in our church, we must repent of it. And we must move forward to be a more healthy church. If you guys will pray with me. Dear Father, um, thank you for just putting this word in front of us today. God, I, um, I ask that we would all repent of the areas where we show partiality or favoritism, where we discriminate against others based on foolish things. Lord, I pray that we would repent when we tend to gossip instead of c- confront, when we tend to tear down when we should build up, Lord, I I truly do want us to be a healthy church. If we can start with this now as a young, small church, as we grow, Lord, this will be a part of the culture that we grow in, Lord. But if we have a small, gossipy, judgmental, um, discriminating church, that's what we'll grow into, a big discriminating mess. A big hateful mess, Lord. Lord, so I pray that each one of us learns to to pray for each other, to love one another, to speak to one another, instead of gossiping and judging and favoring. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.